I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is Please Go On, where we go deeper with the author of an important op-ed. Inflation is the worst it's been in three decades. Prices rose 6.2% last month compared with a year ago. A surge that began in narrow sectors is spreading throughout the economy. Our guest, Larry Summers, saw this coming. And in a piece this week, he predicts inflation will get worse before it gets better. Excessive inflation and a sense that it was not being controlled helped elect Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan and risks bringing Donald Trump back to power. While an overheating economy is a relatively good problem to have compared to a pandemic or a financial crisis, it will metastasize and threaten prosperity and public trust unless clearly acknowledged and addressed. Summers was one of Barack Obama's top economic advisors during the Great Recession and served as Bill Clinton's Treasury Secretary. He's a professor at Harvard and was previously president of that university. Here's our conversation. Hi there. Hi, James. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this. I really, really appreciate it. Glad to do it. You have been sounding the drumbeat on inflation all year long. Uh, at the the start of the year, you faced withering criticism, including from the White House. One advisor said you were flat wrong, but you've obviously been proven right. And there's been a genre of stories lately. New York Magazine had a headline last week that said, maybe we should have listened to Larry Summers' warnings. Does it give you any pleasure to have been right? No, I would rather that our economy was functioning better and that we weren't facing a serious problem of inflation. I recognized that it was possible that what we did would work out. Fortunately, what I thought was more likely seems to be unfolding. What were you seeing 10 months ago that others weren't? And has it played out as you expected? Are there other drivers that you hadn't fully anticipated? I certainly didn't see all the details. I didn't see uh, Delta virus happening. I didn't see the details of what's happening in uh, semiconductors. But broadly, what I saw was an unprecedentedly massive effort to stimulate the economy in terms of a budget deficit that was going to have about 15% of GDP in fiscal stimulus, combined with monetary policies that were unprecedentedly easy. And I saw that in an economy that was becoming relatively normal and that I thought would be in quite normal conditions by the end of the year. And so when we had massive stimulus coupled with relatively normal uh, conditions, I thought we were going to have a demand-supply imbalance. And that's broadly what we have had. And that tends to lead to rising inflation, which is what we've seen. There are nuances. Uh, the goods sector is super strong. The service sector is still relatively weak. There are aspects around the great resignation. So there's lots of texture one can bring to it. But I think the example I used at the beginning of the year was that if you try to put too much water into the bathtub, you're going to have an overflow and you can discuss the exact design of the drain and you can discuss the temperature of the water. And there are a lot of things you can discuss, but that sometimes it's a good idea to step back and look big picture. And that's what I did. And I think the view I took 
has uh, been borne out. Keeping with that analogy, we're continuing to pour water in in some ways. How worried are you that inflation is going to get worse before it gets better? The general view now is that it's likely to not get better and even possibly uh, get worse uh, for the next several months. Pointing in that direction are unprecedented levels of labor shortage, growing signs that cost of living allowances are being put in labor contracts, uh, epically high quit rates, pointing to wages on fire, and businesses all reporting that they can pass on cost increases. Pointing in that direction is the fact that house and rent prices rose in the 20% range over the last year, and that's largely unreflected in the CPI so far, suggesting that it will come to be reflected. And in the consumer price index, housing is uh, nearly a third. So those things suggest we've got some real trouble ahead of us. How big is oil as a contributor? Oil, I think, is less important than labor or housing, but it certainly has been a contributor, and no one knows what's going to happen next uh, to the price of oil. We may get some respite on gasoline. There'll probably be a tendency for some more people to come work in uh, the labor force. That all could, could happen. Part of the debate, part of the problem in all this conversation was a confusion. Some people said that some of inflation was transitory. They were right. But when inflation was running at a 6% rate, or as it was in some months, a 10% rate, saying that some of it is transitory is not to say that it's all okay and that we're anything like a price-stable country. So I think there are some transitory factors that will come back to normal, but I don't think that the whole thing is on a path to solving itself without fairly substantial policy action. I want to talk about what that policy action is. But first, you write in the piece that excessive inflation in a sense that it was not being controlled helped elect Nixon and Reagan and risks bringing Trump back to power. For those of us who didn't live through the 70s, can you explain why inflation is so politically toxic? So I think there are two answers to that. One is that we economists can explain, and we're largely right in our explanations, that higher inflation means higher wage growth, and higher price growth. But the vast majority of people out there see the higher wage growth as something they earned and the higher price growth as something that was taken away from them. So they feel like they're being robbed and they're losing ground because of inflation. And that's something that survey evidence by Nobel Prize winner Robert Schiller and others has demonstrated pretty strongly. And so it just makes people unhappy. And of course, the inflation effect is on 100% of the people. The marginal unemployment effect is on a few percent of the people. And it's the whole population that has the opportunity to vote. I think the second thing, and I think it's very, very important in this moment, is people see what's happening at the store, what's happening at the pump, what's happening uh, when they turn over their lease as a sign of whether things are under control in the country. And inflation rising is a sign of things out of control. It may not be fair, it may not be right, but I think people look for a sense that 
things are under control. And when they see inflation, they doubt that. So those are the reasons why the evidence is pretty strong in that direction, that inflation is uh, bad for incumbents and particularly for progressive incumbents. You've said you'd vote for President Biden's Build Back Better program if you were in Congress. Republicans are very much trying to create this new narrative of, that spending is out of control, that just every there's just too much money flowing into the economy, that bathtub is overflowing. Can you explain your thinking on, on Build Back Better? I think one has to be careful about it, and we're going to have to look very carefully at whatever bill ultimately is put forward, and it's going to be important to see just what numbers come out as the details come out and the bill is scored. I think that progressives exaggerate when they say this is going to uh, reduce inflation. But I think conservatives exaggerate pretty badly the inflationary consequences. The things your listeners should remember are that this bill is less spending over 10 years than we've had over the last year. And they should remember that last year's spending wasn't offset with revenue increases, and this year's spending will be offset by revenue increases. Are there questions about just how those offsets are going to work? Yes. But on balance, I don't think there's grounds for believing that there's a significant inflationary impact, certainly not one that the Fed, if it's got the right orientation, should not be able to uh, manage. And I think that some of the spending is really about bringing things under control. If there are more and more hurricanes, uh, more and more floods, more and more windstorms, more and more forest fires, that's part of things being out of control, and this brings them back under control. If families are not able to take care of an aging parent, which is increasingly common as the baby boom generation ages, things feel out of control uh, to them. So I think on balance, uh, this is the right thing to do if we do it carefully. I think the people like uh, Senator Manchin and others who have performed an important service I think it's very important that there be appropriate safeguards so we don't back ourselves into a spending spree down the road that's not paid for. Done right, I think uh, this bill is a step forward and will help the American people and help the American economy. And I think it is fear-mongering to suggest that it's going to be highly inflationary. And I say that as someone who I hope at this moment has some credentials as an inflation worrier. We'll be right back after a short break. Hi, everyone. I'm investigative journalist Kylie Lowe, and I'm here to tell you about my weekly podcast, Dark Down East. Each episode, I take you to my home in New England, where we truly get to know the people at the center of the cases we dive into. Join me and dig into some cases you won't hear about anywhere else. Listen to new episodes of Dark Down East every Thursday. 
Or check out the extensive catalog of existing episodes now, wherever you listen to podcasts. You've run the Treasury Department. Uh, One of the big kind of holdups as part of this bill is how much you can reasonably get in terms of revenue from stepping up IRS enforcement. What's your sense of if there was more money for IRS enforcement, how much that could actually bring into the to the coffers? Here's a fact, uh, James. If you hire one more IRS auditor for one more hour and you put her to work uh, auditing people with over a million dollars in income, that person will raise $4,500 per hour. I don't know what IRS salaries are. They're not anything like $4,500 an hour. They're not 5% of $4,500 an hour. So it's a super high payback return. Now, you might say, yeah, but how much of that can you do? Here's the key thing. We've cut the IRS auditing rate to the lowest number of auditors since the Second World War. We've got computers at the IRS that are still working on the computer languages I learned when I was an undergraduate 40 uh, years ago. So there's a huge amount that we can do. What's the right number? Former IRS Commissioner Charles Rosati, who for most of his life was a Republican, estimates that the right kind of program could raise $1.6 trillion over 10 years. My research estimated that the right number was $800 billion. The Treasury says that it's $400 billion. The CBO looks like it's only giving credit for $120 billion, far less than 10% of Rosati's estimate. I think it's pretty conservative to go with the Treasury Department, which is substantially less than my best guess. Think about it this way, uh, James. And yeah, there's lots of issues at the at the IRS. There's lots of issues with how the government manages things. But a nation that could put a man on the moon, a nation that could sequence the genome, a nation that could incubate companies like Google and Amazon and Apple, I defy anyone to argue that it cannot collect 5% of the $7 trillion that are likely to be unpaid but owed over the next uh, 10 years and with a sufficient effort. And that's all that's necessary to meet the kind of targets that the administration's talking about. Look, it's the right thing to do in terms of uh, deficit control. It's also the right thing to do in terms of fairness, since most of this is at the high end. If you get paid a salary by the Washington Post, there's a W-2. Why shouldn't there be compliance on people who earn millions of dollars in profits? That's what this is about. I think it's a no-brainer. I want to wrap up the interview by talking about the solutions element. I hope everyone goes and actually reads your piece because you do, you really tick off a bunch of potential solutions, especially on the monetary policy side. And you sort of suggest that Fed Chair Jay Powell starting to kind of get it more than he did even in August at the the Teton Summit, uh, where he talked about the five pillars that you explained in the piece. Can you talk about what you see as the, the levers to pull? I'm interested in the monetary policy, but also just 
for Washington people, the fiscal policy side too. Like, what are the levers that people should be pulling to deal with inflation on the policymaking non-Fed side? So first, credibility is crucial. And there needs to be a recognition by the Treasury Department and by the Federal Reserve that our principal challenge now is overheating. And that because our principal challenge now is overheating, we're no longer in a mode of trying to stoke up demand. And that needs to be stated clearly. Second, the Federal Reserve needs to greatly accelerate its adjustment of policy. There is no reason why we should have eight more months of buying up mortgage-backed securities when we're in the midst of a huge housing boom that might well be a bubble. There is no reason why we should continue to be growing the balance, Fed's balance sheet at a rapid rate. And there's no reason why we should be allowing interest rates in real terms to be falling. And so those are adjustments that need to be made. That's the most important thing. There are some things that I think the administration can do that would affect the structure of the economy in ways that would reduce prices and therefore contribute to inflation control. The most important of them is moving much more rapidly in negotiation with other countries to reduce our tariff burdens. I think that we need to be attentive to the supply of oil. That means looking at the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. That means looking at restrictions on the amount of oil and natural gas that uh, can be produced. Yes, we do need to be very attentive to the environment, and that is ultimately what's uh, most important. But given the magnitude of the spike that we're having right now, and given the dangers to inflation psychology, I think we need to think about the supply side as well. Following up on that, you mentioned earlier in our conversation the Great Resignation. You obviously are, among other things, a student of labor markets. You know, a lot of people making decisions for themselves, not thinking in the macro sense. What's your read on the labor market? Are, are there enough workers right now, or is that something that we should be concerned about? It's less a matter of what we want than what we, than what is and what we forecast. And I think if you take the consequences of COVID fears, COVID vaccine rejection, greater psychological anxiety, reassessment of life plans, greater levels of assets because of what's happened to the stock market and the housing market, greater capacity to move in and out of jobs by working at home, greater social benefits broadly, I think it is very reasonable to think that we're not going to have quite the same level of work effort as we had right before COVID struck. So I think that those who are hoping that in the fairly near term, we're going to see big increases in labor supply have so far been wrong. And my guess is they're going to continue to be wrong uh, for a while. And 
I think we should do things to help people back into the labor force, like the president's family leave policies. I don't think it's realistic to think that so many people are going to be coming back. And that means we need to adjust demand for reality. Well, Dr. Summers, thank you so much for taking the time to, to talk all this through. Thank you. Many of the ingredients we rely on to produce Thanksgiving dinner are much pricier than usual or even unavailable because of the supply chain mess. Some families are downsizing or rethinking traditions. Price increases fall disproportionately on lower-earning households, which spend a significant share of their incomes on food, rent, and gas. Many food banks are struggling this holiday season amid higher demand and higher prices. If you're able, please consider donating to a family in need. Please Go On is produced by Julie Deppenbrock, with editing from Allison Michaels, Renita Jablonski, and Michael Duffy. This episode was mixed by Veronica Simonetti. Our theme music is by Ted Muldoon. The show notes include links to both op-eds that Summers wrote this week. The first, on inflation, outlines steps to curb price increases, and the second elaborates on his argument that the Congressional Budget Office is lowballing how much revenue can be gained from strengthening IRS tax enforcement. I'm James Homan, and I'll be back next week, right before Thanksgiving, with another episode, because there's always more to say. <laughs> 